So our next Bible reading from Luke chapter 24 begins in verse 13. Luke 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast, One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they didn't see Jesus. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it's near the evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by, by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened thinking they'd saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why doubts? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Thank you, brother Tony. G'day, everyone. Uh, On the screen, have a look on on the screen. Christ is risen. 
Amen. And uh, I love to think, uh, like, because, you know, two, two billion Christians throughout the world, and I love to think of that phrase being spoken in every language uh, across the world. In fact, let's, let's hear a couple of languages here today. Who knows another language for Christ is risen? Can I have a microphone there? Put your hand up if you know another language. I know Christos and Asti, which is Greek. Hands up. Another language. Who can... Oh, here we go. Where have we got some Dutch? The Heer is opgestaan. He is risen indeed. Amen. Uh, that, so that was Dutch. What else have we got? Oh, we're over here, running over here. And, and, and when they say it, you can say, he is risen indeed, if you want to get in the spirit of things. Um, where are we? Yeah, tell us what language. Kiswahili. Kiswahili. Ame fufuka. Ah, yes. Ame fufuka. He's risen indeed. What, what, what about you, brothers? Um, uh, Cantonese. Cantonese. I can say... He's risen indeed. So that's Mandarin? Mandarin. Okay, terrific. A bit of Nigerian over here? Yeah, he is risen indeed, brother. Uh, what else have we got? Any last takers before? Like there's so many beautiful languages here amongst us. I, don't make me go all the way over here. Any others on the way? Okay, so this is the last, this is the last offer. Um, all right, here we go. Le Christ est ressuscité. Okay, which is? In French. In French, yeah. Croissant. Uh, <laughs> he's risen indeed. Okay. Uh, all right, so that's the best I can do. Um, so, with the resurrection of Jesus comes life and hope and joy and courage. Uh, and my prayer as I've been preparing today and uh, even this morning as I uh, speak to you, my prayer is that you will take hold of the hope and the joy and the courage that comes through the resurrection of Jesus, that it will change your life. I want to ask uh, a question as we begin. And the question on the screen, compared to 10 years ago, Australian society is better now and heading in the right direction or worse now and heading in the wrong direction. Talk to the person next to you while I set things up. I've got to boil the kettle here. So talk to the person next to you. Okay, kettle's boiling. So, um, so we're going to do a survey, uh, and so we're going to start with, uh, do you think it's better now, and then we're going to go worse, right? So I want you to put your hand up if you think it's better now and heading in the right direction. No, no, no. So if you think it's better now and heading in the right direction. All those hands up. Oh, okay. Uh, wow. Uh, what about if it's worse now and heading in the wrong direction? Wow, there you go. That is interesting, isn't it? Well, they did a major survey across Australia, uh, 3,000 people, and this is the result. Uh, so you are even more pessimistic about Australian society than the average Aussie. But it's, oh, I hope that's not too noisy for you, the boiling kettle. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's, 
there's a feeling that we're heading in the wrong direction in society. Let me ask you a second question. Speaking personally, my best days lie ahead of me or my best days are in the past? Have a quick word to the person next to you. Okay, everyone, wow. Everyone understand the question, yeah? So we're gonna go with my best days lie ahead of me. All those who think that, put your hands up. Well, all right, my best days are in the past. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, now let's have a look at the Australia-wide results. Uh, my best days lie ahead of me. Most Australians would say that overwhelming majority of you would say that, uh, and uh, only a few would say my best days are in the past. Now, interesting. Have a look at those two graphs. What do you notice about those two graphs? Here's what I notice. Even though we overwhelmingly think Australia is heading in the wrong direction, so even though we're pessimistic about society, we're still optimistic about our own lives. There's a hope for the future that we still carry, and that's across the board in Australia. And, and, and that tells you something, that there's an unrealistic optimism going on. Uh, there's something, there's, there's, there's an optimism, but you've got to ask the question, what's the foundation for that optimism? If we think society's heading in a worse direction, what is the foundation for thinking that my best days are in the future? And just a question, right? Come on, uh, I'll show you the Americans and what they came up with. So they asked the Americans, another major survey, um, <laughs> I've got steam coming up at me here. Okay, me, tell us about a mix of, as you look back over your life, is what percentage is positive, what percentage is negative of the experience over the course of your life. And Americans, and they are a positive bunch, aren't they? But they said 60% of my past experience are positive, 40% are negative. I wonder what you would um, say about that. Come on to the next one. They ask the question, as you look at the future, and notice again that most people imagine a more positive future. Only 16% say my future is a negative future. Why don't you just have a quick chat to the person next to you? Would, you have, would, would what you have said match what this survey came up with? Just have a quick word. Okay, got you thinking. Now, one of the, one of the things that I'm, I've reflected is that we humans crave hope. We crave hope. We just, we don't want to live without hope. Hope is what energises this, isn't it? It sort of gets you out of bed in the morning, gives you a sense of purpose, uh, so that there is some hope in the future. It, it energises us. 
Hope produces courage. Uh, so if I'm going through a tough time, but there is hope at the end of it, I can kind of have that resilience to endure it, to press through if I know that there is a good outcome coming at the end. So we crave hope, we need hope, but in our craving for hope, we have a tendency to skew reality, kind of in favour of optimism. Psychologists call it optimism bias. Uh, and let me show you on a picture. So, so we have this sense of uh, an expectation of the future, and it kind of is a fairly smooth road. You know, here I am, here is the future that I imagine that I'm heading towards, and we imagine it a smooth journey, when in reality it looks more like this. Uh, you know, the mountaintops, the cliffs, the piranha in the middle, uh, and, and life just keeps on turning out to be far more complex, far more difficult, there's far more suffering than we anticipated. And sometimes reality can catch up with us uh, and we can start to feel defeated. We can start to just get discouraged that this is just harder than I had imagined. Uh, we can start to feel anxious because you think, well, if this is the journey this far, what's it going to be like going into the future. Uh, and sometimes our optimism bias can lead to catastrophic results. Like this guy. Can you see the thought bubble going on? <laughs> Typical teenage boy, right? The thought bubble is, here we go, easy, cruise over the, the chasm uh, and land safely on the other side. And everyone in the crowd goes, yay. But in reality, you think he's not going to make it. And, and anyway. So sometimes our optimism bias leads to catastrophic outcome. Now, Easter Sunday is about real hope, real hope. I don't think that's the way our society thinks about the message of Easter, but this is the way the Bible readers think about Easter, and it's certainly my conviction that Easter is about solid hope. Easter is about a hope that is well aware of the struggles and difficulties and pain of life, well aware of death and sickness and corruption and all those sort of things. And yet, Easter is about a hope that is solid, that will never disappoint us, that we can completely give ourselves to, knowing that God will bring it to pass, uh, that he will bring us safely home. And so with that confidence, we can live with courage, and joy even through the ups and downs of life. And my prayer is that all of us will take hold of the real hope that is on offer through the Lord Jesus. So open up your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I'm going to make it a little bit easier. I'm going to put some of the readings on the screen, but I don't want you to, you know, if you've got a Bible there, open it up and have a look. We've been working our way through Luke's gospel. We're up to the final chapter today. And the context of that first Easter morning is despair. The women disciples who had given up their lives to follow Jesus, they had watched with horror as Jesus was crucified. They stayed while the, the male disciples fled. They stayed and watched in horror 
as their Lord was publicly humiliated and crucified. So the women who had followed Jesus from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things take place. They saw Jesus placed in the tomb. So verse 55, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, it was his tomb. They saw the tomb, they saw how the body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. So we come to the third day, Easter Sunday. Very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. These women, like so many others, like all the disciples that followed Jesus, these women had pinned their hopes on Jesus. They lived in our world. They knew of suffering and sickness and death and spiritual oppression. They knew of warfare and corrupt leadership and bullies and abuse of power. Uh, they lived in that world and they felt the, the pain of that world probably even more acutely than we do today. It was just very much on the surface of their lives. It was a world full of fear and anxiety. But Jesus had stepped into our world and with his coming came hope. You know, the way he healed sickness, the way he drove out spiritual oppressive forces, the way he even raised the dead, uh, the way he combated the, the corrupt religious authorities. There was a sense that this man will be the one who will finally overcome evil. This man will be the one who will usher in God's eternal kingdom. And so there was so much hope and expectancy surrounding Jesus. He was like a light shining in our dark world. And yet the crucifixion was like their hope being snuffed out. The light turned off. Uh, and all that remained was despair. And so these women come to Jesus' tomb to mourn and grieve, not just a loved one, but to mourn and grieve the loss of hope, uh, the loss of expectation. I love the way C.S. Lewis is just such a a rich, provocative thinker. C.S. Lewis wrote the Narnia books, and he describes Narnia as a place where it is always winter, but never Christmas. Now, it doesn't make sense in Australia, but in, if you grew up in you know, Europe or you know, one of those cold climates, winter uh, is, it happens you know, around the same time as Christmas. And so you go through this bleak winter with all the snow and the cold and you're huddled up inside and outside it's a slushy mess you know on the ground and and it and so winter can just drag on and on especially if you're a little kid and uh just drags on and on but the one bright point the thing that kind of sustains you through winter is knowing that christmas is coming uh, and and christmas is the time of joy and presence and family and, and, and just a time of celebration. But sometimes, this is C.S. Lewis's reflection, sometimes 
in our world, it feels like it's always winter, but never Christmas. There is, sometimes it feels like there's nothing to break the bleakness, to break that sense of despair that comes on life. Uh, and you might be here today feeling in a little bit of that place, uh, just feeling a little bit like the despair of this world, the bleakness uh, is overshadowing you. Uh, and if that's the case, you, like the women, have some good news to hear uh, in the coming event. So what the women discovered that Easter is the foundations of hope, three foundations of hope. Firstly, they discovered the empty tomb. They found the stone rolled away. So this is a, chapter 24, verse 2. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered... They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, the women go and tell the male disciples. Peter has to check it out for himself, so he also goes to the tomb. Verse 12, Peter, however, got up, ran to the tomb, bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now, the empty tomb is the first foundation of hope. On its own, you're not sure what it means. On its own, it was confusing, uh, discouraging for those first disciples who came across it. I want to say, historically speaking, there has never been serious doubt that Jesus' tomb was empty. The big question is, how did it become empty? And that brings us on to the second foundation of hope, and that is the resurrection foretold. Um, so at the empty tomb, two angels appear and they speak to the women. Verse 5, they say, why do you look for the living among the dead? Why would you expect to find Jesus here? Right? He's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners. He must be crucified and on the third day be raised again. And then the women remembered the words of Jesus. And it's like the light was turned back on. The flicker of hope fanned into flame. Again and again, Jesus had told his disciples. You read Luke's gospel. Jesus had told his disciples we're going to Jerusalem. Everything that's written about me in the Holy Scriptures is about to be fulfilled. I'm going to be rejected, killed, but on the third day, I'll rise again. Just the, the disciples never took it on board because that was not part of their plan for Jesus. But Jesus says it again and again. Uh, and it's because that's what the scriptures, the Old Testament part of the Bible that was written hundreds of years before Jesus, again and again it prophesied that God's Messiah would, be, would suffer and be rejected, killed. He would bear the sins of the world before rising to new life. So when the women saw the empty tomb, they should not have been surprised. If they'd been listening to Jesus if they'd been listening to the Old Testament scriptures, it should have fanned their hope into flame because the resurrection had been foretold 
time and time again. But there's one more foundation of hope, critical, and that is the risen Jesus appears. It begins in verse 13. We hear of two disciples leaving Jerusalem, about a 10-kilometer walk to a town called Emmaus. You know, so a two- or three-hour journey. Um, and it's, 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 a, it's a story just full of intrigue because these two disciples just heavy, heading off to Emmaus with heavy hearts. And the risen Jesus pulls alongside them and starts talking to them. But they don't recognize him. Not at first. Um, and so Jesus asks them, what are you talking about? Verse 17, they stood still, their faces downcast. There's that heavy mood over them. Like the women, they had pinned their hopes on Jesus. And like the women, the crucifixion had snuffed out their hope and now they are left feeling so discouraged. And so they tell Jesus all about these things, about Jesus' life, his ministry, the hope. They tell him about his crucifixion. Verse 21, we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, but he was crucified. And what's more, now the body has disappeared. And look at Jesus' response. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So by now, by now for these two disciples, their hope has their hope is returning. They still haven't recognized Jesus, but everything this man is telling them makes sense. And the pieces of the puzzle are coming together. Could it really be that Jesus has been raised from the dead? And they press Jesus. They say, please stay with us. Eat a meal with us. And it's while they're sharing a meal and Jesus breaks bread and he, eats, he drinks wine with them. Verse 31, then their eyes were open and they recognized him. And then he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? While he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the 11 and those with them together assembled and saying, it's true, the Lord has risen and he has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened along the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Now just let me, um, I'm coming back to this kettle. Just a sec, turn it on. All right, boiling, okay. Um, Ignore the kettle for the moment. I'll show you the kettle in just a moment. It's not all that exciting, right? But just hold off. Uh, so um, the third foundation of hope is that the risen Jesus appears physically, bodily. This is not a ghost. He eats with them. He drinks with them. They touch him. And over a period of the next 40 days, we will get 
lots of different eyewitness testimonies of people, disciples of Jesus, who saw him, touched him, ate with him, walked with him, talked with him. Uh, and, and, and these are people who will write most of the New Testament and they will say, we saw him with our own eyes. We talked with him. We, we felt the hole in his hands where the nails had gone through, the wound in his side where the spear had gone. So with my kettle, um, uh, the, the water's boiled now. What temperature do you think the water will be? Just have a word to the person next to you. Can you predict what temperature? Can you see I've got a thermometer here? Let's have a look. Um, if you can throw the thermometer up. So the thermometer's at 21 degrees. That's because this is my, um, my meat thermometer, right? Uh, so it's got two prongs just to make sure that we're... There we are, two prongs. Put it in there. Press it on. Oh, let's see what happens to the temperature. Are we all excited? 23, 84, 92. Oh, what do you reckon? What temperature? Let's have a look. 97. Oh, it stopped there. 99. Oh, 98. Oh, come on. The anticipation is huge. Well, let me boil it again. Hey, there we go. All right. Okay, thank you. Uh, now, how did you know that it would get to 100 degrees? You're taught in science, right? There's a certain confidence you had, wasn't there? Because um, you can repeat this experiment over and over again. You did it at school. You know that water boils at 100 degrees Celsius, and there's something repeatable about that. Now, um, it's a very... I don't think this is such a profound point, but anyway, let me make the point. Historical certainty is not the same as that certainty you can get in the laboratory. Uh, and sometimes we approach certainty about God and Jesus and his resurrection as if we want laboratory certainty. We want to see 100 degrees Celsius every time we boil the kettle, put the thermometer in. Historical certainty is not like that. But we live on the basis of historical certainty all the time. So, who believes I was at church on Friday, on Good Friday? Hands up if you, uh, hands up if you don't know. Right, you, some of you don't know, because I wasn't up the front here. I was kind of loitering up the back. Uh, so what you'd do is you'd ask eyewitnesses, and I think pretty quickly you'd come to the conclusion that, you know, that loud voice singing away uh, in the back row... That was, that was Dave Sheath. And some people actually touched me, or you know, shook hands at least. Uh, anyway, so you could kind of piece it together and, and you could be extremely confident that I was at church on Sunday. That's a recent event, isn't it? And, and Sunday as well. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, no, Friday, good, good point. Yeah, good point. Thank you for the clarification. Uh, all right, now you go back a couple hundred years and I think we have a lot of confidence that Captain Cook and his crew landed on the east coast of Australia, 1770, uh, and it was probably the first European kind of to, foot, to, put, you know, to step on the east coast of Australia. Now, I don't care if you believe he was the first European, but around 1770, we have confidence in that event. But again, we're sort of dependent on eyewitness 
records or journal logs or whatever, that's the kind of confidence that we should expect when it comes to a historical event like the resurrection. You can't repeat history over and over again, but you can draw together reliable eyewitness testimony and come to a confidence in these things. Um, and the confidence we can have in the resurrection is based on those three facts. There was an empty tomb. The resurrection had been foretold again and again in the ancient scriptures, in the words of Jesus, and then there were hundreds of people in this small kind of town, not, about the same population of the central coast, even less, Jerusalem. Right? Hundreds of people saying, we saw him, we ate with him, we drank with him, we, we, we felt the wounds in his side and so on. Uh, Tom Wright is a famous historian and a doctor of theology, and he says this about the resurrection. No other explanations have been offered in 2,000 years of sneering scepticism. It's a lovely phrase, isn't it? 2,000 years of people trying to cast doubt on Jesus' resurrection. And Tom Wright is just making the point, what other, what other viable alternative is there? How do you explain the empty tomb, the resurrection being foretold, not only by Jesus but the Old Testament scriptures, and then all these people who seem completely sane saying, we met the risen Jesus. We really saw him. We really touched him. Um, and I want to say to you, you know, it's lovely to have everyone here. And if you're coming and you're not certain about these things, can I, I want to invite you to check it out for yourself. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what Tom Wright thinks. It doesn't matter what Dave Sheath thinks. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the skeptics think. You've actually got to make an informed decision for yourself. No one else can actually make that decision for you. And it's not, it's not a decision of light consequence. Like if I came here on Good Friday or not, it doesn't matter too much. But if Jesus rose from the dead, so much rides on it. What the scriptures are saying is he is God's eternal king. And one day every knee will bow to this Lord Jesus. And we just want to invite you and give you any help we can to find out about these things, to investigate it. Because we want you to come to a confidence, a certainty, just like many of us have. That brings me to the final point. And that is the impact of hope, joy and courage. So the disciples said, were not our hearts burning within us as, as hope was fanned to flame as they talked with Jesus? One of the theme words of this chapter, Luke 24, is joy. Um, because hope has been reignited. Uh, Jesus has risen from the dead Evil has not triumphed. There is hope of God's kingdom breaking into our world once and for all. And when we get to the second volume of Luke, another key word is the word courage. 
where you get these disciples who were so scared, who ran away from the scene of the crucifixion, uh, who just were a quivering mess in despair. Something happened for them, and they testified that it was seeing and talking to the risen Jesus that gave them a courage that was so impressive they would even be willing to go to death for their testimony that Jesus is God's king. And that's been the consistent pattern over the last 2,000 years. We followers of Jesus, we still experience the ups and downs of life. Life kind of looks like this for Christians as well as people who are not followers of Jesus. We have the ups and downs of life. Uh, And for us Christians, we have an extra kind of valley, and that is persecution. That we will, it it will give an edge, a hard edge sometimes to some of our relationships because some people just don't like Jesus. And so following Jesus brings that kind of dynamic into our lives as well. But we experience, as Christians, we experience the ups and downs, and yet it doesn't rob us of that solid hope, that real hope. Uh, And it gives us a courage and a joy along the journey, a resilience to press on because the future is so good and so certain. And so we press forward. Now, this is a hope that I've heard expressed over the last week or so by Evelyn Jess, sorry, Pat, for that photo, but I I didn't have the other photo of you, brother. That was just on Facebook. Um, uh, Anyway, uh, so it's a hope that I've heard our brothers and sisters who are being baptised today, I've heard them express. So Jess, she used a lovely phrase. She talked about a new lightness that has come on her. And I think she's expressing the idea that she was carrying a heaviness, a burden, a sense that Life was all on her shoulders, and that was a heavy burden for her. But now that she has put her trust in Jesus, there's a lightness and a confidence as she faces the future. It's a beautiful testimony. Evelyn spoke to me of the forgiveness that she has through Jesus, of just knowing that her sin has been washed away, that there's no more guilt or shame. Gary, even though he said compared me with Jesus. He was, he was not serious, right? I'm not Jesus. Um, but even though his health is failing, he's got this new sense of joy and purpose in life. And one of the critical conversations with, with Gary and his wife, Gloria, because Gary's been coming for five years and he was just a passenger up the back for so long. But about six months ago, Gloria said, I want to be confident that Gary, that you are there with me after we die, that you are there in eternal life with me. And that was a kind of a a kick along for Gary. And within the next few days, we caught up and he expressed his trust in Jesus uh, and put his hope in him. And Pat, we didn't get to hear Pat's full story because Pat talks about the confidence that he has, that he knows that his sins have been forgiven, that he can kind of head towards the future knowing God has got it in hand and he wants to give his life to the Lord Jesus who gave his life for him. Um, What I'm trying to point out is that the impact of hope 
as people turn towards the Lord Jesus, it changes our lives in a beautiful way. And we want you to find out about this hope. We want you to experience it if you don't experience it already. So, look, there's a series that we've got coming called More to Life. Uh, There's a little QR code with a cute dinosaur in the middle, but you can take a photo of that or come and talk to me about that and we'd hook you up with that series coming at the end of this month. Um, I've also got a book written by a friend of mine, uh, Ben Shaw, and his wife is here with us today, Karen. But it's called Seven Reasons to Consider or to Reconsider Christianity. Um, And some of you might remember me telling you about this book a year ago. Uh, But as Ben was writing this book, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And so the ideas of the book took on a new sense of weightiness, a new sense of significance for him. And he he says in the book, in the end, far from having been shaken by his cancer diagnosis, far from being shaken, I can honestly tell you, having this life-threatening illness actually sharpened and increased my faith. Now, Ben died only weeks after the book was launched, but he faced his death with confidence, a solid hope, and that expressed itself in joy and courage as he faced his final days uh, and final minutes Uh, As he faced death and what lies beyond, he did it with confidence. And I've seen that again and again, and it is impressive and beautiful to behold. And my prayer is for each one of us that we will take hold of this solid hope, that we will find joy and courage in, in knowing and trusting and believing in the risen Lord Jesus, who laid down his life for us. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we want to thank you so much for Jesus, that he died on the cross for us, that he paid the price for our forgiveness. Please forgive us. Wash us clean. Take away all our guilt and shame, just as you promised to do. And Father, we want to thank you that you raised Jesus from the dead, that despair and evil is not the final world, final word. Father, we thank you that you've given us a solid hope. Please fill each one of us with joy and courage as we face the future, knowing that we are safe and secure in your loving care. And we want to pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, so please, if you'd like to get a hold of that book, uh, I've got a few copies here, and, and if, you're, if you'd like to reconsider Christianity, I'd love to loan you one of those books, or if you don't live nearby, I, I could even give one to you. I'd be that generous to you today. Um, now, the band are going to sing, well, well, some of the band, um, and it's an item, so you just get to sit back, listen, and reflect. It's oh, a, I want them to sing in the chorus. What's that? You're just singing the chorus. No, right? I want them to sing. Oh, yeah, you could, sorry, and you can <laughs> sing the chorus, by all means. Um, it's a song by Colin Buchanan called Real Hope. And I love this song, and it's just, it's just a beautiful Aussie ballad 
about real hope that is found in Jesus. And as I, as I was writing my talk, I thought, oh, that would that, be a great song because real hope is what the resurrection brings. And then as I looked at the song, it has no mention of the resurrection. And I thought, I'm gonna, I might do something about that. So what I did is I wrote an extra verse. And I didn't think it was right just to... So I, I emailed Colin Buchanan, and I said, Hey, Colin, look, would you consider us singing an extra verse um, on Easter Sunday? And he... Um, at first, there was a very long email, and at first he was kind of resistant, but then he, he warmed up as the email went on. So look at, look at what he says. He says, Dave, nice work, digger. And then there was a big, big, you know, big uh, bit of email, but then he said, good fun. I can see how it might be a, a nice cameo in your service with a nice story behind it of the random collaboration between the poet pastor, that's me, um, and the vagabond bard, right, that's him. Blessings at a busy time for you. May the wonder of the resurrected Jesus delight you and your flock and some among them for the first time. Blessings, mate. So here's the verse that Colin and I wrote. <laughs> uh, here it is. It was a real tomb on the third day where the women came to weep in their despair, but the real darkness of real death was shattered for their saviour was not there. God the Son is risen, he lives, he rules, he reigns. And then I'll hand over to the Musos to run us through the rest of it. So thanks, thanks Musos. Yeah, good, good words. Yeah.